All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Younger listeners might know John Battelle as being one of the original forces behind the Web 2.0 movement in the early 2000s, as the founder of the Web 2.0 Summit, as well as Federated Media. But John was also the founding editor of both Wired Magazine and Industry Standard Magazine, that great lost magazine of record for the dot-com era. For our purposes here, we've been spending a lot of time focusing on Hotwired, so that's why I was super excited to speak with John and get some of the background stories from the mothership, from Wired the Magazine. Again, I think this is another excellent discussion, so please enjoy John Battelle. John Patel, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, when I was doing a little research on you, I was surprised to find out that um, you, you kind of got your start in, uh, in journalism at, at Mac Week. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, I took a job there. Well, I should say I took an unpaid internship there when I graduated from uh, college. So what was what was the... Apple Media Industrial Complex like in the days before blogs and things? Well, it was quite similar in terms of the way they handled the press. Um, I was a, uh, I guess you could say, an unabashed Macintosh fanboy. Um, I guess the Mac was only three years old at that point, but it came out while I was in college, and I did a little bit of... Um, uh, kind of QA, uh, user testing, uh, work on a database application that was built both for the PC and the Mac while I was in college as a, as a you know, side job. And I just fell in love with the Mac um, and uh, thought it was just the most important thing that had happened in the history of forever in terms of our cultural artifacts. Um, I was studying uh, cultural anthropology at Berkeley, and it seemed to be you know, the most exciting, interesting, uh, new, um, you know, kind of instantiation of, of, of 
you know, something that we had built as a culture that was going to, you know, be remembered for a very long time as fundamental and, and, and world changing. So I just wanted to be involved in it. And um, when I graduated, I, I had a couple of opportunities. One of them was this unpaid internship uh, at a startup magazine that was covering the Macintosh. Um, and the other one was uh, I was pursuing a technology analyst job because I, I wanted to be in that space of, of looking at, at the impact of technology at Morgan Stanley. Um, and the Morgan Stanley job, everyone told me, was just a grind, and everyone who had analyst jobs at, at investment banks were super unhappy, and I just didn't like the idea of going to a big skyscraper and you know, being stuck in a cube. Um, so I, I went for the unpaid internship, which um, it's kind of funny because it's about the same time that Mary Meeker started her career. Uh, and Mary, of course, became a you know, world-famous technology analyst for Morgan right. Stanley. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm very happy with my choice because it, it turned into a paying job, I think, like a week or two later. Um, and then um, three years of just super happy work being a, a reporter covering the space. So how does that lead to, uh, you know, being a reporter to being, you know, the, the managing editor of Wired? Was it something that you applied for? Had you had you no. encountered uh, Lewis and, and Jane pr prior to that? Um, only very, very briefly. Um, so while I was a reporter, I mean, as, as, as it now happens with, you know, sort of hot, sh hot shot reporters at TechCrunch or Mashable or, you know, the New York Times or wherever, you kind of get a reputation. I, I, I was known as, as a sort of a scoop machine, and um, I also, I think I got a pretty good reputation for really deeply, you know, caring and, about understanding what I was covering. Um, I mean, I did my share of rewriting press releases. Everyone does that when you're starting out, but um, I really wanted to understand the larger impacts of the things I was covering and I covered databases and, and networking and I covered uh, user interface and uh, certain beats throughout those few years. But I also rapidly kind of turned into a manager. I became, like, I think, an assistant managing editor at MacWeek and I ran the copy desk, which is the group of people who process all the stories and put them into the word processing program. I got extremely proficient with the software that we used to make the magazine. It was the first national desktop published magazine ever. Um, and so I think, you know, I just made a lot of contacts and I became kind of known um, in that, at the time, a very small industry. Um, and then I left to go to graduate school because I really wanted to tell the story um, more broadly. I thought that there was a huge story that was not being told about the impact of uh, technology on our culture. And at MacWeek, it was a you know business to business vertical that you know wrote for corporate IT managers who were responsible for purchasing computers, right? And so you you write to that audience very differently than you might write to um, consumer who eventually became the readers of Wired, right? Right. Um, and so when I went to graduate school, you know, kind of my world opened up, the aperture opened up quite significantly, and I while I was there. Um, I developed an idea to start a magazine uh, about that story. Um, essentially, I, I came up with the idea for something that looked and felt like Wired, but I didn't have the chops. <laughs> I mean, I have the business chops. I didn't have the design chops. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and fortunately, uh, one of my 
uh, colleagues at MacWeek who went on to do other things um, uh, had run into Lewis and Jane and talked to them about becoming the managing editor, but he just didn't think it was a good fit or he didn't want to um, take the risk of you know this uh, underfunded startup. Um, he was older, and I think you know he just had more responsibilities and a little less risk tolerance. So he suggested that they talk to me, um, and uh, Lewis gave me a call in the summer of '92, um, right when I had gra- just graduated um, and was finishing up uh, a internship at the Los Angeles Times, which I really did not enjoy because um, it's a big corporate environment, and I don't do well in those those kinds of environments. At least I didn't then, <clears throat> and. Um, when Lewis called and described his idea to me, I was like, "Holy crap! I, you know, I'll show you my uh, my thesis, uh, master's thesis proposal, which I had created to create a magazine that sounded exactly like the same thing." That master's thesis proposal was shot down by my dean. He said, "There's no way you're going to be able to pull this off." Um, he was probably right, and I ended up writing a long, uh, ten thousand word piece on the future of uh, print as it relates to interactivity, um, but uh, that. I think the fact that I had, you know, already come up with a similar idea and was super passionate about it, and Lewis and I just clicked, um, and he took a big flyer on me um, because I was 26 years old and really had no, um, you know, no uh, justifications for being the managing editor of that magazine. Um, but he took a flyer on me, and and it ended up working out pretty well. So when you when you join on, what stage are they at? Are they are they still raising money, or or they have enough money to start the the prototype first episode? Or, sorry, episode issue. Um, yeah. Is that where they, they're they, at? They had raised a little bit of seed money, um, and they had built a you know uh, like a hand built prototype of what it might look like. Um, and there were four or five full time people: Lewis, Jane, Kevin Kelly, John Plunkett, and his wife, who were the designers. Um, and, and a couple of people who were kind of working either part-time or for no money um, who were just kind of connected to it through, you know, to do distribution uh, or, or, you know, production or, or whatever. Um, but there, there wasn't really a staff beyond the founders. So I kind of came in as the fifth founder, I think. Um, and, uh, and so it was, you know, my job was from the time I started in, in August to the time we uh, shipped the first magazine, which was in December, which was essentially to build issue one. Mm-hmm. And um, it launches around the the Macworld in, in January of 93, is that right? Yep. We shipped it in late December, and we got bound copies back, like, on day one or two of Macworld. And how quickly, you know, it, it, this is one of those things that I like to ask you know, directly, because the legend is, is that, you know, the magazine was an instantaneous overnight success. How quickly do you remember it uh, being successful and taking off? It depends on how you define success. If you define success by, um, you know, how your core market that you really were writing for um, responded to it, it was an overnight instantaneous success. Um, there's a couple ways you can tell that. One is just talking to people, right? You know, when we were handing out the issues, and that's what we did. We took boxes of, of, you know, straight from the printer, and we went out to MacWorld, and I'm, you know, 
stood at the bottom of escalators when people were getting off from Moscone and handed them issues, you know. Um, and then you'd get reader feedback. You know, you talk to people later that day or, you know, um, at night during the parties or whatever, and people loved it. You know, people said it was amazing. It blew their minds. They, you know, they'd been thinking the same thing. It was like something appeared in the world that um, catalyzed a conversation that was already happening. Um, so from that perspective, it was clearly, uh, you know, a hit almost immediately. The next thing we noticed is, you know, when you when you launch a magazine, you put little cards in it. There, if you recall, if you ever did, you used to read magazines. Right. Yeah. You open them up, the cards would fall out in your lap and right. irritate the hell out of you. Um, that's called white mail. If people actually fill that out and send it back, you know, that's like a huge win because that means you spent no money to acquire a new subscriber. Um, our white mail was overwhelming. Um, we we started getting these cards back in the mail at a level way, way higher than we expected. Um, and, you know, we had a, a new staff that we had put together. You know, I remember people in the offices, five or six people would just sit around with the next issue, which was two months later, um, mailing them out individually because we didn't have a filament process because we did not expect, I, I can't remember the numbers, but they were, um, I don't know, five or 10,000, maybe more. Uh, that came in from the first issue, which was insane. That's like way higher than you might expect. Um, and that's when we knew we had a, a bona fide hit on our hands because, you know, that kind of response is, is, is pretty unheard of. So that let's just take that first year then after the launch, um, you know, so let's say the first 10 or 12 issues that you put out. What are the stories that you're pursuing? Like what is... What do you feel like the, 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 the vision, the mission was that the magazine was going to try to tackle? Well, we wanted to tell the stories of how technology was changing our culture. Um, and, it, it, you know, on the one hand, my sort of formal journalism training and, and my instinct was to go report those stories and find them wherever they were and tell them. Um, but the truth is that many of them were... Um, not yet truly unfolding and required a certain amount of um, of taking a, a sort of kernel of a story and playing it forward and imagining what was going to happen because of it as opposed to what was actually happening. So we really believed that uh, the way education was going to be structured and pursued was going to change fundamentally because of digital technology and networking. Um, but, you know, to go find a proof point of that was really hard because it just wasn't happening. You know, the idea of even just computers in schools was pretty new. Um, and, and what computers were in schools were like, you know, a bunch of IBM PCs kind of, you know, teaching kids how to program Pascal, right. Or, you know, maybe some technical schools teaching kids how to, how to, um, you know, how to become IT managers, right. There really was not, I mean, where we are now with, I don't know, public companies that are, you know, MOOCs or, you know, uh, to, to you, which is a public company that does mm -hmm. education platforms and so on. That, that was all like in our imagination that that was going to have a story. Right. Um, and that happened in almost every field of endeavor. I mean, anywhere we looked, we saw the story, but it was super hard to actually find that story, um, and tell it in a, uh, in a meaningful way without, um, 
really using your imagination. So um, in, a, in a way, what you're saying is, is it's a little bit reporting, but then there's a lot of extrapolating that you have to do also. There's reporting, there's extrapolation, there's going and finding, you know, edge fringe cultures that um, may be harbingers of where the story was going to end up going. So like in the first issue, you know, we, we went out and talked to all the freelance writers we could who kind of had done anything interesting in this space. And there were, you know, uh, I would say a handful of them, right? You know, whereas if you were doing Rolling Stone, you could find a rock and roll writer anywhere. But you're doing the Rolling Stone of technology. You know, it's like, okay, where are the people who you know, I felt like were like me, you know, who wanted to just tell the story and that's all they cared about and they just were so stoked about it. And, you know, we found John Markoff at the New York Times or we found um, – you know, a guy who lived in Japan and was noticing this sort of crazy culture around um, Japanese anime, um, you know, and and we asked them to either, you know, not just write about that culture in Japan, but pull back and say, what does this mean if this kind of culture spreads around the world, you know? And it was that perspective, that sort of optimism about how this thing was going to spread beyond what it is now that I think really helped inform the magazine. You know, we, we would say we would use a lot of the quotes that are now kind of, you know, uh, givens in our industry, but we were really like surfacing them often for the first time. You know, we would talk about McLuhan. We would talk about, um, uh, Vannevar Bush. You know, we would talk about, um, uh, you know, the uh, Gibson and, you know, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So our job was to go find where it was and report that little glimmering of it and talk about what happens if that becomes the whole future, right? And so we were really driven to to find those stories that, you know, seemed unimportant but turned out to be super important. So do you remember when obviously the story eventually is going to become that the revolution is happening and it's happening on the web and the internet, which obviously existed when Wired launched, but weren't really a thing yet, mainstream-wise. Yeah. Do you remember when that started to change and, and then that is becoming the more prominent story? Sure. Um, the first issue... Um... In the first issue, one of one of the people who we were just connected to as a writer who was paying attention to this stuff is a guy named John Browning who was um, uh, in Europe at the time at The Economist. And in an email thread, maybe it was Lewis or Kevin or me, I don't know who he was you know, talking to, but he said, hey, you know, there's this kind of really interesting project um, at the sort of European equivalent of Los Alamos Labs called CERN. Um, and it's done by this guy and it's called the World Wide Web and and we were fans of Ted Nelson and the Xanadu project and you know his hyperlinking theories and all of that and having been you know at uh, Mac Week and covering Hypercard and um, uh, all the you know potential behind that uh, that kind of uh, um, connectivity and, and content um, we said oh there's probably something there. We we did a brief mention of it, I think, in issue one. But by issue two, it was like, okay, this is a big deal. You know, and so it started becoming uh, something that we paid attention to more. And and by the middle of 93, you know, Mosaic had started, um, and we got the first, you know, we were like, 
I don't know, all of us had, you know, the first version of Mosaic. We were all on the web all the time because all of us were already, you know, I was on like six different online services, you know, the Well, uh, AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy. I was on all of them. Um, and so when the web showed up and and the potential to do what we were doing on the web became real, we were like, this is a huge deal. We we have to figure out a way to do this. And this really, I, I, all credit to Lewis, because he, he was like on fire about doing this. And not only doing it, you know, like just putting our stories online, but making an entirely new medium out of it and figuring out a way to tell the story we were telling, but telling it natively to that medium was his battle cry. Right. That actually, we're, we're getting into hot-wired territory now. That actually strikes me too, because... You know, famously, Lewis and Jane had such a hard time raising money for Wired. Wired, the magazine, finally comes out and is successful. And then immediately on top of this, it's almost like, okay, now we have to launch an entirely new thing. You know, there's yeah. no there's no time to rest on our laurels or enjoy the none. success or anything. No, none. I mean, we, we, you know, we spent a lot of time in, in our kind of senior management meetings, I guess you'd call it, though. I don't think we would have called it that back then. But, you know, the, the, the five of us you know, really thinking about how do we do this, you know, okay, we're making a magazine, we're going to keep making a magazine, but how do we, how do we create something new? Um, you know, do we use the same editors? Do we use the same freelancers, the same content? Do we, you know, use the same, you know, people? And, and, and the answer in all those was no, we have an entirely focused separate team that does nothing but this. And, you know, it was up to Lewis and Jane to figure out how to raise money to, to make that possible. But we really, from the very beginning, you know, um, we brought on uh, an executive to run it, and that person was responsible for making a team and making the product. And, you know, what we did is we supported it. You know, the people who created the magazine supported it, and it was a division of the company we started, but we weren't, like, we didn't operationally run it day to day. We spent a lot of time on it, of course, but we didn't. It wasn't ours, you know, day to day. It was Andrew's and his team's. Right. I, I spoke to Andrew two weeks ago. Um, did you, but was there any sort of bringing people over from the magazine side to the hotwired side? Like people that, okay, if you're interested in this project, you can shift over, right? I mean, to the extent that uh, I, 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 I don't want to misrepresent anything because I may just be forgetting stuff, but, mm -hmm. but the truth is not really. That I recall, you know, most of us cared deeply about that and were very involved in it. You know, looking at at, at features and products and 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 helping. You know, if there's you know they hired a bunch of writers, they hired a bunch of designers and coders and you know um, support people. But we did not. I mean, we were so lean and so small at the time we made the decision to do this that it was not like. Um, there was anyone to spare off the magazine, you know? Right. Um, so we, you know, we just figured out how to, uh, you know, what would be the wired brand as it related to the internet and hot wired and what would be the hot wired brand. Um, and as I recall, I may be wrong here. I think wired magazine was just a channel on hot wired. <laughs> we weren't, you know, some master brand over it. So, how, what year is it that you finally leave Wired? I left Wired in the, the 
summer, late summer, I think, of 97. 97. Okay, so that's not quite into the, the dot-com madness yet. You get to go through well, all that. Well, it, it was certainly starting to happen. I mean, the Netscape IPO had already occurred, and right. uh, there was an awful lot of, uh, of madness and noise, and the mainstream media had already kind of caught up to the story and was putting the Internet and the World Wide Web on, on every magazine cover and, and all the news you know, coverage around you know, it was all whiz-bang and information superhighway and all that shit. And, and Wired itself was sort of the poster child of of that story. Right. Well, that that's my question is, so as that starts to ramp up and it becomes this phenomenon, you know, and the Internet is permeating, you know, all of media and, and mainstream stuff, is it harder for a monthly magazine to even... I know that you guys weren't like a news periodical so you weren't covering stories but was it harder to keep up as this cycle starts to spin faster and faster it really wasn't um we you know what we did um was develop and, and execute super unique you know narrative and there was so much of it just so much of it that it was not it was never like what are we going to put in the magazine this month it was never Oh my God! Someone else has beaten us to the punch. Um, we watched as other magazines started to cover the same story, but they didn't have the depth of, of editorial uh, understanding and the network of, of writers and and illustrators and 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 just creative folks involved. We always thought like, we we were kind of owning that story, and and I think we were owning that story when I left. Um, and I didn't leave because I thought the the magazine was on the wane or anything. I left because I was excited about doing something new right. that I thought I was uniquely kind of in the right position to do, not because I, I thought that, that, you know, that, that monthly magazine as a model was threatened. Um, the company, you know, was, um, the company was, had its own issues that were, you know, unique to that company, but not unique to, to many startups that were trying to figure out the right way to finance and the right way to grow and the right way to manage people and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, and that wasn't really even the reason I left. I mean, it, it might have been an informing reason because I was young and, you know, frustrated that I thought I had a great idea I wanted to do and I couldn't do it inside that company. Um, but really the reason I left was I came up with an idea I thought was pretty good and I wanted to go do it. Right. Before I before I ask you about industry standard, um, were there also were you involved in any of the other projects like the the launch of Hotbot or, or anything like that? I was involved in in I, I was involved in all of them insofar as we made decisions about do we do this or do we not do this or how do we do this or who do we hire or can you interview people and that kind of stuff. Some of them I was more involved in than others. Um, I was not very involved in Hotbot at all. Um, that turned out to be a very, very smart move by Andrew and others. Um, I was, um, you know, moderately involved in that I would spend a lot of time during kind of pre-launch and launch in a number of other projects, um, whether they were launching in other countries like the UK or launching a book series, which we launched called Hardwired or launching a television unit, which I worked on a lot for a while. Wired TV. Um, so I got involved in a lot of different things. Um, but I, I, you know, Hotwired at the time I had left was, was its own big entity doing its own thing. 
Um, and I wasn't uh, very involved in, in a lot of the strategic stuff that they did, like Hopbot. So you do leave Wired to start Industry Standard, right? Is is, is it your idea to, to start the magazine, or were you yeah. recruited for that? No, no. I, I, I had the idea, and I, I brought it to you know, to Lewis and Kevin and, and, you know, those two guys, you know, no idea is going to happen without the editorial Troika, which is the three of us agreeing that it was going to happen. And, uh, you know, Lewis thought it was a good idea, but he just didn't, um, he wasn't excited about it. Um, and I understand why, you know, probably for a number of reasons, one of which is kind of expensive to start a weekly magazine. Um, and so I was, you know, I was actually just trying to figure out what I was going to do with this idea because I was, you know, super hot to do it, and and while I was doing it, and it's sort of similar to how I ended up wired. I got a phone call from a recruiter, from a company that wanted to start a magazine covering the internet, um, a weekly magazine covering the internet, um, and so they didn't have an editorial point of view about what it was or you know how it was going to approach the market or any of that stuff. But they just you know it was IDG, and they saw a new market emerging, and they wanted to have an entrant in that market. So I became uh, the the guy they hired to make that happen. It was a you know, and I showed the guy who ran IDG. I showed him here. Here's my plan. Here's what I think we can do. And he's like, okay, go do it. So just to briefly touch on it, what what was it like to be running a a, a weekly magazine on on the internet? You know, in the midst of the dot com madness in in ninety eight ninety nine that that time time period. Um, first of all, I don't know how much I remember. I mean, <laughs> I was literally a blur. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, people think the industry standard was an overnight success too. Um, and by the standards of publishing, it was, but, uh, you know, we had a couple lean years, you know, maybe a year and a half where it was like, we didn't know if it was going to work. Everyone loved the editorial product. We had an absolute, like, you know, hardcore, you know, readership. They loved the product. And and so that piece was, I think we nailed it. But it was hard to find an advertiser base um, in, you know, late 97, 98, um, and even early 99, um, because, you know, the big companies with the big budgets had not yet decided that this market was important for them. And so that's where I, I mean, I was working my tail off to, you know, with Cisco and IBM and HP and, you know, all those guys just saying, hey, this market's really important and these readers are really important and here's why they're different and special and here's why reaching them in the industry standard as opposed to Business Week or as opposed to the Wall Street Journal is more important contextually, you know, they're reading for this very purpose and you want to be part of this story. So it was hard, but the other piece was I launched not just a magazine. Um, I learned from Wired, and I launched, an, uh, you know, a very sophisticated online site for the time that we launched it. Um, that got a lot of traffic, um, and I launched conferences at the same time, um, so that we had three lines of revenue uh, from the very beginning. Um, and you know, I couldn't have done that really without the support of a corporate parent like IDG who, you know, had a conference group who could execute conferences and, you know, um, so we, we, you know, took advantage of that, but it was not easy. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, when the standard sort of became, you know, the Bible of the 
first dot com boom, um, you know, we had a whole other set of problems, um, which was that all of a sudden everyone wanted to advertise. I mean, the, the bit just flipped, I think, in, gosh, spring of 99. And what happened was is that everybody, you know, uh, everyone's startup started getting funded. All those startups wanted to um, advertise what they were about and, their, you know, who they were and why they mattered, and they all wanted to buy pages in the industry standard because they understood that that market uh, was kind of feeding on itself, that everybody read that magazine and that if they were in that magazine, then they mattered. And then it was just like, you know, managing a hyper-growth company. Um, you know, I felt like I was holding on to the back of a truck going 100 miles an hour. So uh, the industry standard famously did not survive the the, the dot-com bust, but right. I've I've seen an interview where you said that that led you to sort of have a crisis of faith about the whole narrative of technology and innovation and things like that. Was it literally Google that that got you your faith back in terms of technology and innovation? I would say it was search. Um, now, Google was the most robust exemplar of search, but it was it was really search. Um, so, yeah, when, when everything blew up in 2001, it really started blowing up in mid-2000, but no one noticed because there was so much money washing around that it took another six to nine months for it to really wash out. But um, when it was, it was amply evident by the first to second quarter of 2001 that, that we were going to have to be refinanced or we were going to have to stop, you know, stop the magazine and stop the whole enterprise. Um, and it wasn't just us. I mean, you know, you know, there was, I don't know how much market value was lost during that period of time, but it was historic, right? It was a far bigger story than just us. Um, and it seemed like the whole world lost faith in, in, this, in the Internet and sort of felt like, well, we got conned. We were told this was going to be the biggest thing in the world, but it turns out it's just another thing. You know, it, it's going to be around, of course. We're not going to, like, you know, disassemble the Internet and go home. But it's not that big a deal anymore, you know. And that's what everybody said. That's what all the advertisers said. You know, that's what – and I'm not talking about the advertisers like the dot-com companies. All that money went away. Um, but the real guys, you know, the IBMs and the Apples and the HPs of the world, um, they're like, yeah, you know, we're just going to go back to the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, and – the story got super depressing, you know, and I, I, I follow narrative. I follow stories, and the story really got depressing. Um, everyone was out of work, you know, San Francisco was a ghost town. I remember going into work in San Francisco in early 2001, and there's nobody in the streets, you know. I mean, it was really, really unhappy. And, yeah, I, I, I kind of lost I lost faith with the story, and I think the truth is for three or four years there, while I was trying to figure out what it means to be a CEO and, 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 and run a growth company and, and just you know hire people fast enough for the opportunity, I was not in the story. I was not reporting. I was not, you know, what I was doing at Wired, except for the last year, year and a half, where I ran business development and, you know, expansion into different businesses, I lost touch with the core narrative, but at Wired, I was, uh, every single word in that magazine, I edited, you know, I wrote almost all of the, um, you know, big type, you know, the headlines, the pull quotes, the captions, all that. 
I talked with writers all day long about their story and helped them revise it, redraft them, and restructure them. I wrote a column every month that ran through the magazine. I, you know, I was deep in the narrative. I talked to sources all the time. You know, so I really felt like I understood the narrative, right? But at the Standard, I made a very, very important decision, um, and I don't know whether it was the right one or not, but I made a very important decision, which was I was not going to be the editor-in-chief. So I hired an editor-in-chief, and I did not meddle with him. I did not fuck with him. I didn't tell him what to do. I, I gave him an editorial blueprint that I had written for the magazine. I said, do you agree with this? He said, it's awesome. I said, take it. Let's go make a magazine. And I did everything but editorial. So I kind of lost track of the story. And when you know the kind of music ended and they weren't kind of, there wasn't a seat to sit down in, right? And I was like wandering in empty streets. I didn't know what the story was. And so I started to kind of look around and say, well, what's, what's going on? And where I saw signs of true life in the narrative was down in Pasadena at Overture and in Mountain View at Google. I mean, here were two companies that felt like it was 1998 and it was never not going to be 1998. You know, it's like they hadn't noticed that the dot-com boom happened, right? Like, I'm like, what happened? Why are these guys thriving when everyone else is wiped out? And, and, and as I dug deeper into that, and I really went deep, you know, um, I, I just realized that the story is way bigger than I thought. And that, in fact, you know, the whole dot-com bust was sort of part of a process that we were going through um, as an economy uh, in transition to becoming a true information economy. And that these two companies and a number of companies that were, you know, in the ecosystem around those companies or competing with them in some way, that was the first sign of the next advance of, of where the story was going to go. Um, and for me, that gave me uh, incredible sense of passion about I wasn't wrong. This story is as big as I thought it was when we started Wired or when I went to Mac Week. And um, I need to go tell this story which is how I ended up starting Search Blog and then writing the search and coming up with the business idea behind Federated. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you again in the future when I get to the Web 2.0 stuff and we can discuss all that. Um, yeah, and then Web 2 came from that. You right. know, also. I mean, I started all four, three or four of those things at the very same year, 2003 to four. Well, as my last question, um, as I always say, everyone I'm talking to, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is exactly 20 years ago. So my, my final question is always, um, when you look at the web, the internet, 
technology in general today. Is it what you thought it would be 20 years ago? Has it not quite lived up to what you hoped it would be 20 years ago? Where do, where do you think we are right now? Parts of it have vastly um, over, um, you know, overshot where I thought that we'd be. In other words, like we're way ahead. Um, I wouldn't have thought uh, that information flows would have reorganized energy and matter to the point where you know, the entire transportation, hospitality uh, industries are, 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 are literally um, being rethought because of, you know, startups like, you know, Uber or Airbnb, um, or that we, you know, that, well, those are probably two of the best examples. But in other areas, I'm stunned at how little progress we've made, like almost none. I would have thought in, in healthcare and energy and in um, education, financial services and, and education, we would have been far, far further along. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like we, we are where I would have expected us to be when it comes to um, how many people are online and how we express ourselves, right? So the whole social media thing did not come as a surprise to me. It struck me as completely what we would have expected it to be, that everyone lived online and had their own sense of who they were online. That strikes me as completely normal. Um, I would have not thought that we would have been as far behind as we are on bandwidth. You know, it's it's a sort of appalling that, that, that you know it took us 20 years to go from dial-up to you know a, a, a thin pipe. Mm-hmm. You know, um, where we're fighting, you know, between family members as to who's who's streaming Netflix, right? Like that's silly that that we have that problem. I didn't would not have imagined. Someone said 20 years from now, do you think this will be a problem? Like, no. One thing we know we can do is we can scale fucking processors and we can scale bandwidth, right? And and we didn't. Um, we're we're doing a pretty good job, but we're not where I thought we'd be. Um, but you know, I mean, generally speaking, it all kind of it all kind of feels like it all happened. You know, all the things that we were. One, I mean, I feel I often say about Wired that what we did is we declared a really important story that many people we're not paying attention to. And the way we declared it is we got into the middle of the public square and, you know, yelled and screamed and stamped our feet and wore wildly crazy fluorescent colors, on, you know, and we just said, hey, pay attention to this. It's a huge deal. And you know what? People did. And it's not just because of us. Of course not. But, it, it, you know, I think we had a, a big voice in it. And, and I think, you know, the story has now become super mainstream and it's still the most exciting and 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 relatively untapped story um that we have i think in the world i think we're just at the very very early stages of it i mean we're what 20 25 years into it and you know the kind of shifts we're going through right now these are you know these are thousand year shifts and that's what we were arguing back then and i think you know now we can argue that and not be um laughed at <laughs> um, and everyone would generally agree so the question is we have much harder work to do now how how do we do this uh, what decisions do we make um, you know this is now at the top of mind of every major head of state every you know major policymaker every major head of a corporation 
every you know major head of a university. Um, this is the central conversation that's happening. Twenty years ago, we were we were demanding a seat at the table just to tell the story. Now everyone is part of it, and they all know it. And I think that's amazing progress in twenty years. John Patel, thank you for remembering all that for us. Yeah, happy to. Thank you for the opportunity. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.